right, so Matt, I, I don't know if I told you or not, but my identity got stolen last week. No kidding, really? Yeah, but Ashley's just kind of letting it ride because the dude's spending less money than me, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Hey, I'm pretty good, man. Good deal. Good. So before we get into it, I want to say go check out the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com. You can find a list of different shows to listen to. We're proud to be associated with these shows, but it may be a show that you wouldn't find any other way. So uh, go over there and look for that list. Also, you can find some information on podcasting. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, they've got some tips and tricks curated by podcasters over there. So go check it out at podbelly.com. While you're on the internet and all that stuff, go check out patreon.com slash graveyard tales. We've started this year adding an ad-free version, ad-free audio version of the show to our $10 a month. Um, Now, Matt and I were just talking about this. If we don't have an ad for this week, like we don't have an ad this week. So if yeah. we don't have an ad, then we're not going to put up an ad free version. But anytime we have an ad, a sponsor, we'll put up an ad free version for our $10 patrons. If you're interested in that, um, our $10 patrons also get a video version of us recording the episode. And in that we leave in the mistakes, the mess ups, Stuff like that. You get to see kind of behind the scenes as we do stuff. Our outfit of the day. Um, I'm wearing my TCU shirt because Ashley is a TCU alum. So I am I now root for TCU. Never thought I would, but marriage will do that to you. So I didn't I didn't know Ashley went to TCU. Yep. Yep. She hey, did. that's awesome. One of the two colleges she went to, but yeah, uh, she went to TCU. So we were happy with the game. And. Until they lost. And then, <laughs> but they weren't that predicted rough, to make it man. there. Yeah, it was bad. That's right. Hey, yeah. I mean, you know, Georgia's been there many times, you know, so I yeah. mean, they were, they were well experienced to, to play in that game. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. That's a big stage for, you know, a school that's never been there. Right. Right. But, uh, yeah, go over there and check that out on patreon.com slash graveyard tales. You can also, if you don't want to be a $10 a month, we have one in five and the one in $5 patrons, they get a bonus episode a week. $1 a month gets the audio version. The $5 a month get audio and video version of the bonus episode. So go over there, check it out. If yeah. you need a little more of your favorite podcast, or if you need a little more of us, then go over there and you know, become a patron for your favorite podcast and us. That would be great. Yeah. And don't forget our bonus episodes aren't like the, the normal stream. Right. Um, we, we talk about all kinds of stuff. Sometimes it's just Adam and I hanging out, uh, going back and forth about, you know, what we've been up to, uh, personally, um, we, we do everything from 
funny, funny lists to, you know, quizzing one another. Um, sometimes we hit some fringe topics. We may talk about a haunted place that doesn't have a whole lot of information, but it's interesting. So it's, it's an entire gambit right. of, of things we discuss. Uh, so, you know, if, if you want to hear Adam and I take on something other than ghosts, um, then well, check it out. I, we've done true I, crime on there as well. Like. Yeah, we've done true crime too. So Matt, that's all I've got for the housekeeping and the intro of this show. So why don't you tell us what are we talking about tonight, brother? Okay, so tonight, um, we've we've done a show like this before where we talked about a cult and uh, a cult leader and and how it came about. Tonight, we're going to look at one of Canada's most notorious uh, cult leaders, and that is Brother Twelve. And when Adam brought this up as a potential topic, I had I had only heard a minute amount about brother 12 but i'll tell you when i started researching this i i just eventually had to go this is all we can talk about (laughs) otherwise we could be talking about this guy for the next two shows yeah i mean he was he he was a an extremely polarizing individual and the stories about how that how the 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 group that he led came about um his influence over people um where where he was drawing his inspiration it's it's fascinating but we'll we'll get into it it it, it hits on something that that I always like to bring up when it comes to this kind of stuff and, and you'll you'll know it when we get there um but yeah, I, I think you're really, I think you're really going to enjoy this one, especially if you've never heard of Brother Twelve. Um, this this is going to be uh, pretty cool. Yep. So Adam, lay it on us, brother. All right. So as we always say, go check our sources down at the bottom of the show notes. You can find where we found all of our information. So go down there, scroll to the bottom of the show notes, and you'll see our long list of sources. Now, I, as Matt was saying. There, there's probably a lot of you who have not heard of Brother Twelve, and I I don't remember exactly where I heard about it, but I have not seen it talked about a whole lot, and it's fascinating to me. Like Matt was saying, just fascinating. But I, I think it's something that needs to be talked about, like we did with the the secret societies before. Yeah, and the Heaven's Gate. We've we've talked about these groups before, right? Now, Brother Twelve was one of Canada's most notorious cult leaders, as Matt alluded to, Um, a mystic figure who dreamed of transforming humanity. He left behind a failed utopia and a deep mystery. So Brother Twelve was a man named Edward Arthur Wilson, and he was born on July 25th, 1878 in Birmingham, England. Now, his parents were Thomas Wilson, a successful manufacturer, and Sarah Ellen Pearsall. I wanted to say selling, but you know, <laughs> just Sarah Ellen together. All. Yeah. Sarah Ellen Pearsall. They were members of a Catholic apostolic church, a 19th century splinter faction of Christianity where services featured ecstatic elements like speaking in tongues. 
Now, Brother 12 was one of the most intriguing cult figures of the 20th century and has been described by Professor James A. Santucci as, quote, sharing the brilliance of an L. Ron Hubbard and the destructiveness of a Jim, Jim Jones and the hypnotic hold of a Rasputin, end quote. So that right there, just that description, I mean, I think it's a good description, but it also, mm. it's a very intriguing description. Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. Um, you know, when you, when you look back at the influence that those three individuals had over people and what they did to obtain it and then to hold on to it. Right. Um, regardless of re- regardless of the events that transpired around them, you you've got to say there was there's something extraordinary about these people and, mm-hmm. and how they were able to essentially control the number of people that they did. Right. It, it's it's wild. Um, now, his group was a prototype of the new religious movements that would be founded by charismatic leaders in the second half of the century. Now, like I mentioned, he was raised as uh, in the Catholic apostolic. Uh, I can't say that word. Apostolic church. <laughs> apostolic, whatever. There you go. <laughs> and I'll get it occasionally. And then the rest of the time it won't work. So. Um, but he was heavily influenced by its apocalyptic teachings. A natural mystic, he would claim to have been in touch from an early age with higher beings and subtle worlds. Now, a, a, he was apprenticed as a youth on a Royal Navy sailing ship, and he traveled the seas as a mariner, a navigator, and eventually as a captain. During his voyages, he immersed himself in the study of metaphysics and world religions, especially the teachings of the Theosophical Society. In 1907, he moved with his wife and children to British Columbia, where he held various jobs, including that of a ship's pilot. By his own account, in 1912, he passed through a, quote, ceremony of dedication, end quote, during which he learned of his occult mission. He thereafter abandoned his family, who returned to their native New Zealand, and he resumed his wanderings and study, uh, ostensibly to ready himself for the spiritual work to which he would later be called. Now, while staying in the south of France in the autumn of 1924, impoverished and in ill health, Wilson heard the voice of an Egyptian deity telling him to prepare for his great task. This epiphany was followed by an intense period of automatic writing and inspirational contact with a higher being who identified himself as a master of wisdom. He was this master of wisdom in an occult brotherhood known as the Great White Lodge, believed by theosophists to guide the evolution of humanity. Yeah, uh, and Adam, let's let's look a little bit closer at what... Um what exactly transpired uh, during Wilson's time in Egypt? Now, um, according to the research, on October 19, 1924, Wilson was staying in a small village in, in the south of France when he awoke one night to see an Egyptian onk 
hovering over in the darkness before him, radiating uh, with this soft golden fire. And it says that he watched it for some time until it gradually faded from sight. Said, but he interpreted this vision as the sign that his mission was about to begin, as, as Adam was talking about. Now, just three days later, he was lying in bed in the darkness, and he says he intuitively sensed that he was about to hear a voice. Now, immediately, he had the sensation of looking down an enormous vista flanked with thousands and thousands of pillars. And he said he seemed to be gazing into both time and space at once. And he said the room trembled and the air itself, like he described it as being as throbbing and vibrating as this majestic voice addressed him. And now here's what Wilson says the voice told him. It says, thou who hast worn the double crown of upper and lower Egypt, of the high knowledge and the low, Humble thyself, prepare thy heart, for the mighty ones have need of thee. Thou shalt rebuild, thou shalt restore. Therefore, prepare thy mind for that which shall illumine thee. Illumine is a, is an odd word, um, but There's that's a lot of odd words in that paragraph. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it has a a very uh, a very biblical. Um, style to it, a King James um, version style of yeah, speaking. all the <laughs> all the these and thous and all that stuff. Um, but you got to understand too. Um, you know, e- even if Wilson was a complete and total charlatan, um, this would have been the language at the time in in the 1920s that people would have paid attention to because mm-hmm. it did sound biblical. Um, so. You know, like I said, he either heard these words, thought he heard these words, or completely made it up. Um, but this was, if he did make it up, this was probably the best way to to write this out. Now, in this, Brother 12 felt like he was clearly identified as a Pharaoh during this event. And in his writings, he speaks of his relationship with the 18th Dynasty Pharaoh uh, Akhenaten and his invocation of light was evidently inspired by Akhenaten's famous hymn to the sun. Now, Brother 12's disciples believed that he was indeed a pharaoh who was trying to reclaim in his present life the power that he once wielded in his ancient past. So, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would love to be able to reclaim the power I had not not even in my ancient past just you know 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but so he convinced his followers that you know that, that this higher power had come to him and and had essentially chosen him you know to to be this this great leader. Mm-hmm. And and what I was alluding to at the beginning was once again, all of this comes out of Egypt. Right. And if you, if you look back at everything uh, Aleister Crowley wrote and did, so much of it refers back to Egypt and Horus and 
all these things. And we know, you know, the pyramids have this, you know, very unique relationship to the stars and where they're positioned on the planet. It, it, it always makes me feel like something about the ancient Egyptians, they, they just, they had knowledge that we don't realize they had. Yeah, I I completely what? agree with that. That yeah. they had those ancient societies had knowledge that we don't have anymore and that we may never gain. But to play partially play devil's advocate and then uh, I'll kind of counter that as well. But I know one of the comments that we'll get one of the questions is do you think that the reason everything seems to go back to Egypt is because we don't know as much about it as other civilizations. And because of that mystery that people say, well, it had to be mystic and it had to be magic and spiritual and all that. Mm -hmm. And to counter that, I'll say the problem that I have with that is we don't see that same push toward Mayan and Aztec religious beliefs where they're still a mystery to us, but we don't push the, there has to be some greater power. We do on a a small degree, but not to the degree we do with Egypt and ancient Egyptians. So I agree. What, what do you think is going on there? Do you think it it's legitimately because there was this, mystical knowledge or do you think it's simply the the mystery behind the egyptians and people are just saying well it has to be something big and powerful um i think it's i think it's some of both i I think that um because as as modern humans there's so much about ancient egypt that we don't understand um, and there's been so much research poured into it mm-hmm. that we automatically look back to Egypt when it comes to ancient astrology, um, ancient mysticism mm-hmm. and, and black magic. Even we, we look towards Egypt, but I also think that that is partially why that Crowley did the same thing that Wilson did this and, and many others that just weren't as widely known. Um, but there were, there were so many, um, spiritualism societies that had Egyptian motif or Egyptian inspiration Mm -hmm. in their ceremonies, in their symbology, um, so there's a lot borrowed from that and, and you're exactly right, Adam. There's not a lot that's borrowed from the Aztecs, uh, from the Incas, from the Mayans. We don't see it. We also don't see near as much from the far East. And right. we know that there was a lot of, uh, a different level of ancient mysticism in the far East, but we don't see that. Um, we don't hear about some of these people traveling in the far East, um, and, and gaining a lot of these inspirations. But yet, you know, when you, when you look at 
Buddhism and uh, Confucianism and, and those type things and, and uh, the Enlightenment. And, and, you know, when you think about all that, it, it comes from the Far East. Right. Um, so there's a component there that I just don't think we see in this era of spiritualism and mysticism. Um, yeah. cause you know, usually when I start to think about it, and it, it's just me, but when I start to think about, um, you know, meditation and enlightenment, I always, I'm thinking about Tibet and Dalai Lama and that kind of stuff. I don't immediately get as far as, um, you know, China and Japan and Korea. I don't, I don't think in those terms, but you probably should. So. I'd say at least for the last 100, 150 years, all of that just kind of gravitates toward ancient Egypt. Right. Um, right, right or wrong, that just seems to be how it's done. And I think we still do that today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm kind of the same way. I think there's a lot of attention drawn to it because of the mystery behind it that we don't know as much as we want to know about ancient Egyptian religious beliefs and practices and stuff. But I still believe that like, it's the same way with like the Aztecs and the Mayans, the Incas, that the ancient Egyptians had knowledge that we do not have. And I think it's proven in their building techniques and some of their, their beliefs about the solar system and planets and stars and stuff, they knew something that we don't think they knew. So I think it's a combination of that knowledge. And then the fact that we don't understand how they knew that or exactly what they knew that makes us always go, Oh, well, ancient Egypt, it must be mystical. Well, that's what I was going to ask if you, you kind of clarified it, you know, for us, but, um, whether you were, of the mindset of they had, they had knowledge that has been completely lost that we don't have, or uh, were you referring more to, they had knowledge that maybe we have now that we didn't know that they actually had then. I think it's a little of both. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree we with have, that. I think we have found the knowledge that they had at one point, but they also know stuff new stuff that we probably may never know because it would take the, like we've discussed before with the, the quote powers that people say the human race Mm -hmm. has lost, like our telepathy and astral projection, stuff like that, that we were able to do at one point that we can't do anymore because of the modern age. I think they had that as well. So I think it's a Mm -hmm. combination of we have, some of that knowledge, but they had a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, and that I can go on a soapbox about that. So we need to probably get back to the <laughs> topic, but, yeah. uh, that would, that's an episode that we have talked about doing. And I do want to do is the ancient lost knowledge of ancient civilizations and how much more they knew than we think they knew. Right. So this goes on to say that in 1925, Wilson began to receive from this entity teachings that he would publish the following year as the three truths, 
a simple statement of the fundamental philosophy of life as declared and shown to Brother Twelve. Um, in 1926, he also published A Message from the Masters of Wisdom, and both of these were published in London, um, but it was the manifesto of the movement for which he was the spokesperson. And as representative of the Twelfth Brother in the Great White Lodge, he took the name The Brother Twelve. So under a pseudonym, E.A. Shaler, Wilson wrote a number of articles in the Occult Review from London, the world's foremost occult journal. These created a sensation in esoteric circles. Capitalizing on this publicity, Brother Twelve set about recruiting members into the Aquarian Foundation, which he claimed would carry out the work of the Lodge and be a literal, quote, Ark of Refuge in the devastation that he predicted would overwhelm Western civilization. And I'm just going to say this. I hope I'm not stepping on anything Matt is about to. If so, I'll cut it out in the in post. But you know that song, The Dawning of the Age of Aquarius? Mm-hmm. That's what this is about. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know that. But this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Yeah, I won't do that. But apparently it was his whole thing was the dawning of the age of Aquarius. The Aquarian Foundation, when his teachings were supposed to come true, that was the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting to point out. um, This kind of gives you um, some insight on what what the popular mindset was in London in 1925 when he was writing articles for the London Occult Review. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a magazine, essentially a magazine, a periodical that, that it called the Occult Review that right. had you know news and, and articles about um, spiritualism and mysticism. And it was very popular. Yeah, and we've discussed that before. There was this uh, uh, occultism boom in London, and it moved into the United States as well because there were even presidents' wives that were into the occult. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So, so London and 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 you know Paris. you know, and then and then uh, New York. You know th- those cities. Uh, they were they were ripe for the picking. Mm-hmm. Um, for more of this type thinking, of right. more of this you know mystical thinking. Right. Now, in the spring of 1927, Brother Twelve arrived in British Columbia, where he established the headquarters of the Aquarian Foundation at Cedar by the Sea, or Cedar, seven miles south of Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. The society was granted a charter by the provincial government on May 16th. By the end of the summer, the foundation numbered about 1,250 members in Canada and the United States. So that shows how quickly his foundation boomed. If he had that many uh, by the end of the summer, started in May. And then by the end of the summer, he had 1,250 members in Canada and the United States. In addition to 
a core of several dozen followers who resided at the colony's headquarters. So he had a few dozen that lived at the headquarters. The rest of them were spread through Canada and the U.S. Now, attracted by Brother Twelve's persuasive prose and personal charisma, many wealthy and socially prominent individuals joined the foundation, several building expensive homes at Cedar by the Sea. Now, Brother Twelve was also active in politics, although by later standards, he would be considered anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic. So, I mean, it's true. When yeah. you get into his teachings, he was anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic. His was the only true religion, basically. But he was in politics. His articles found a receptive audience, despite all that. Now, he argued that the world was moving rapidly toward global dictatorship and warned, warned that a network of interlocking monopolies would concentrate power in the hands of a few individuals who would control the fate of the planet. Now, he used the Foundation's monthly magazine, The Chalice and Nanaimo, uh, which was first issued in November 1927, as a platform for his political views. In January 1928, he traveled to Washington, D.C. to solicit support for a third party in the U.S., aligning himself with Protestant groups, the Ku Klux Klan, and disaffected political elements that were opposed to the presidential candidacies of both Herbert Clark Hoover and Alfred Emanuel Smith. So apparently at the time, uh, Alfred Smith's Roman Catholicism was a divisive issue in that year's campaign. I mean, I don't even know, really, I don't have any good witty comments about that. Well, it 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 came it's come up in other elections you know the uh, religious beliefs of who was running for president um because you remember John F Kennedy was catholic too right right and and that was a that was a sticking point you know for a lot of folks um you know it and especially in the 1920s the late 1920s yeah and you know in the 20s the the thought was always that if our president is Catholic, then the Pope is going to have some type of control mm -hmm. over what they do and that they may not be as an effective leader. If you know, they're, they're following the Pope. They're just, we're just, you know, giving the Pope power in the United States. Yeah. By that's proxy. what everybody was afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that was, that's just, I mean, that's just way, the way it was, you know, people, right. people were a lot more narrow minded, you right. know, than not, so he not that there's not a bunch of them running around now. <laughs> They're just right. narrow minded about other stuff, you know, <laughs> but he capitalized on that, um, that, that thought process. And like you said, the narrow mindedness of people at the time, he capitalized on that in order to gain some publicity and some power. Yeah amongst these disaffected groups. Now, at Cedar by the Sea, Brother Twelve lived with Elma Wilson, whom he presented as his wife, though they were never legally married. Now, in July 1928, he initiated an affair with Myrtle Baumgartner, uh, the wife of New York of a New York physician, claiming 
that they were the reincarnations of the Egyptian gods Osiris and Isis, and that their children would become a world teacher in 1975. Now, Baumgartner miscarried twice and afterwards suffered a mental breakdown. Brother 12's infidelity precipitated a crisis among the members, which was exacerbated when he was accused in October by the foundation's governors of misappropriating a $25,000 contribution from a wealthy supporter. Now, Mary Wortham Connolly was that supporter that donated the $25,000. Now, the charges, uh, the charge was dismissed the following month when she testified in court that the money was a gift so he could do with whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. Now, in a subsequent case in which a worker at the colony brought suit for unpaid wages, Brother 12 was alleged to have used his occult powers to disable his opponents, causing people to faint in court and the plaintiff's lawyer to forget his argument. Though he was victorious in his legal battles, the failure of his political plans and his soulmate's inability to produce a child led to widespread disillusionment among his followers. Yeah, and that is what I knew of Brother 12 was... The, the events, yeah, the events yeah. that happened during these court cases. Um, in the first trial, Wilson put a spell on a man named Turnball who was supposed to testify against him. When Turnball was in the witness box, he appeared to be attacked by some like unseen being or spirit. Now, several people in the audience fainted, as Adam mentioned, and it was said that the judge also had a hard time speaking. Mm-hmm. So as a result, um, the judge had to call for the court to be adjourned for that day. So, I mean, you know, they were attributing all this ridiculous chaos going on during these court proceedings to Wilson's black magic. Right. And I heard um, just to keep on the judge thing, there there are stories of his powers making the judge bark rather than speak. <laughs> wow. There there were people that testified to, it wasn't that he was having trouble uh, speaking. It was that when he tried to speak, it would be <laughs> instead of that's, that's English. Crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. But even, even through the barking, they, they did, uh, they did manage um, the judge did manage to officially legally dissolve the Aquarian Foundation. So it, even though um, Wilson was essentially acquitted of any wrongdoing, they still took away um, his foundation. Right. And so in the end, all the black magic and spiritual attacks hadn't been enough to, to prevent that. Now, one of the key witnesses against Wilson did disappear in Seattle, and it's still believed to this day that they were murdered. But this disappearance would cause even more fear to those who would continue to follow Brother 12 and those who might consider standing up to him later. You know, so, you know, regardless of how the, the, the trial went, um, the events were pretty frightening with the people that were in his community. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gave him 
a considerably more uh, control over them. Plus, you know, it, it it made them afraid of him. Sure. You know, sure. so if, if, if you believe th- that he could do that, yeah, you would be afraid. Yeah. So by the time that the second group was ready to battle Wilson in court, they were already afraid of this. Mm-hmm. You know, they they were terrified to do this. And you know, I read one thing that said Wilson had uh, had let slip out that he had put a curse on the witness box. Okay, mm. and they they knew what had happened during the last trial. Um, he let but, it slip, huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But because of the hysteria, the, it almost never even went to trial because mm. they they couldn't get witnesses um, that were willing to testify. Right. Um, so this new wave of psychic attacks was unleashed upon the second group who tried to fight back. Some of them claimed to have been inexplicably paralyzed or to have been uncontrollably possessed by terror. Um, but like I said, it had been conveyed to them that Wilson had put a curse on the witness box. And as a result, um, All of the witnesses threatened to back out of the case altogether. But one of the lawyers had what is referred to as a First Nations relic. It was a lip talisman or, you know, like a like a lip ring Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from a Haida medicine woman. The lawyer convinced the witnesses that as long as they held on to this talisman, Wilson could not harm them. So slowly, witnesses began to take the stand, and then the attorney would give them this talisman. And each day, they were testifying with more and more confidence because nothing was happening to them. Right. Um, so, can you that, imagine that happening <laughs> in a court now? Oh, it, it it makes me think of stuff like Richard Ramirez. Yeah. You know, doing yep. the sign of the devil and all this stuff, and saying "Hail Satan." You know, he's He's putting forth this image of, I have some type of magic power that I can right. utilize to harm you if you go against me. Right. Um, and, and look, you know, with the events that had happened prior, why wouldn't you believe that? Sure. Sure. So undeterred by these developments, Brother 12 expanded his original settlement to uh, Valdez and De Corsi Islands. So despite them wiping his foundation, he actually expanded his original settlements. Yeah. And these islands lay adjacent to Cedar-by-the-Sea. So in 1929, he renamed the new colony the Brothers Center, declaring that it would become a, quote, city of refuge where the select few whom he invited to live there would survive the coming uh, collapse of the social order. Now, he accurately predicted the stock market crash of October 1929 in a series of monthly letters, which linked his work to the spiritual movements of previous eras, including the monotheism of Egyptian Pharaoh Akhenaten, like Matt mentioned earlier. Now, his new consort, was Edith Mabel uh, Scottowy, mm-hmm. who had arrived in the colony in the spring of 1929. The two participated in an occult marriage 
and legally changed their names to Emil de Valdez and Zora de Valdez. So they changed them in, uh, he changed his to Emil de Valdez March 23rd of 1931, and she changed hers to Zora de Valdez in September 23rd of 1931. Yeah. Right. And oh, uh, oh, Mabel Scottowy, well, she was, uh, she was something else. She, um, besides changing her name to Zura de Valdez, she referred to herself as Madame Z and would that go. That sounds on, better anyway. <laughs> yeah. She would, she would go around the settlement, um, berating people, uh, you know, verbally abusing people, um, you know, telling them that they're lazy and all this other kind of stuff. So she, she wasn't just extraordinarily liked either, but. Everybody was afraid of Wilson, so they did what she said. Right. Um, in fact, because one of the statements that Wilson made about her was, she is my eyes, my ears, my mouth. Whatever she says, you are to take as coming from me. So, you know, after an edict like that, people were afraid to, you know, go up against her. Now, Madam Z brutally enforced Brother 12's edicts, and many of the disciples came to fear and despise her, though she and Brother 12 remained inseparable. Um, as Adam said, they had undergone their own ritual marriage. Now, Mary Connolly, who was the wealthy benefactor Adam mentioned earlier, she used a Rudyard Kipling aphorism to describe Madam Z. She says, quote, the female of the species is more deadly than the male. Mm. Um, you know, referring to the fact that at the end of the day, Madam Z was the one to be feared, really. Sounds like it. Now, Brother 12 and Madam Z would eventually flee British Columbia when the second trial appeared to be going against him. Remember all those folks? They held on to this talisman, and they were able to get up and testify. Um, so it, it looked like this was not going to go his way. Right. So when they fled, they destroyed much of the compound. Now, they're believed to have fled with the money Brother 12 kept from his followers' donation, which he had converted to gold coins and sealed in glass jars with paraffin wax. Now, each mason jar was then slipped into a small cedar box with rope handles for easy portability. Brother 12's treasure eventually amounted to 43 jars of gold coins, which he shuffled from island to island, hoping to outwit a possible thief. And many believe that his hoard is still buried somewhere in his island kingdom. Uh. So, you know, Adam said something about a deep mystery that he left behind. The the mystery of where is Brother 12's treasure is is it. Uh -huh. Okay? And you know, that there's been all kinds of theories about why it would still be there because they they were escaping they obviously needed funds to be able to set up another life for themselves. Um, 
or, or even rebuild what they had built in British Columbia. Right. Um, so you would think, why would they leave any of this behind? But the idea yeah. was, is you think about how heavy a mason jar full of gold coins would be. And then you're going to put it in a cedar box and you're going to tote it around with rope handles. Now, you're going to multiply that um, out to 43 jars. And, you know, the, the fewer jars you put in each crate, the easier they are to carry. But now you have a whole bunch more crates. So right. the, the thing is, is you've got a, a man and a woman that are going to transport all of this gold to wherever it is they're going. They're either going to have one gigantic box full of all this heavy, these heavy coins, or they're going to have more than they can probably transport themselves. So and they the guy, have left some to come back later. That's right. And, you know, they hit it somewhere thinking we'll come back and get it at, at a later time. We'll only take what we need to sustain ourselves and get set up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so the former Aquarian Foundation compound has become a popular site for treasure hunters who believe that Brother 12 may have hidden additional jars of gold throughout the island. Now, gold seekers have dug throughout. They have dismantled cabins, they have dived in the lagoon, and they have explored the caves of DeCourcy Island. Nobody's got any gold to show for it as of yet. Okay? Now, in, uh, in John Oliphant's book, who is the authority on Brother 12, um, his book, Brother 12, The Strange Odyssey of a 20th Century Prophet, Oliphant tells a story from a man named Dion Sepulveda. And Sepulveda had worked as a servant to Brother 12 after his family joined the colony. Sepulveda had helped Brother 12 build a cement block on an islet just off the coast of DeCourcy Island. He told Oliphant about the ceremony that Brother 12 held around this block. What's not mentioned in the book is that Sepulveda says Brother 12 stored some of his gold in that cement block. Now, when Oliphant was researching his book, he eventually found the block, but hmm. it, it was cracked open and it was hollow, but it was empty. Oh, geez. Given the appearance that maybe, just maybe, somebody else had already found it. Now, much later, Oliphant's friend uh, told him a story about a mysterious old sea captain known only to the uh, Nanamo residents as the captain. He's a mysterious figure, and uh, it's just the captain. Awesome. And I think there's a podcast with somebody that calls (laughs) himself the captain on there. Now, according to the captain, he claimed to have found Brother 12's treasure and said he was keeping it in a safety deposit box in a bank near downtown Vancouver. Oliphant says that he was never able to track down this man or confirm that he had found the treasure. But according to this friend, the captain had said that he found the gold on or near Valdez Island and that it was encased in a block of cement. Huh. That sounds right. So I these mean, things, according these, to the legend, yeah, these things are kind of piecing together. It, it, 
it makes sense that maybe this guy did. And, and I could see if I had just found uh, a, a bunch of hidden gold that was put there by a mysterious cult leader, um, I, I'd be pretty happy if everybody just knew me as the captain as well. No kidding. And <laughs> I ain't telling nobody. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard enough to stay anonymous, you know, so just give them something to call you and leave it at that. Yep. <laughs> now, as I said earlier to date, no one has announced the discovery of the treasure. Um, and then, and this one I loved one, one searcher ripped up a false floor in one of the colony's buildings. And he was convinced that the gold was gold was right beneath it. A false floor, sure. He found a loose roll of tar paper on which was inscribed with chalk, for fools and traitors, nothing. <laughs> I, I heard about that, and I love that. I love yeah. that. So That's they, like a, a jab from him. Yeah. You know, that I may be dead and gone, but ha-ha. <laughs> So I don't know about you, Adam, but that that kind of leads me to think that there there was a lot of treasure around there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. If he went through the time to transcribe a note to potential treasure hunters or thieves or whatever, and hid it in a false floor, uh huh. That maybe at one time there was something there. Yeah, that he took with him. So, uh, you know, that, that mystery has, has, you know, it continues to have people that go up there and search and look, you know, treasure hunters, man, they just can't, they can't give it up. I mean, look, you know, those, those guys have dug the ever living crap out of Oak Island. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, it's like another Oak Island. They'll just, and <laughs> Canada with their gold mysteries. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're turning the landscape into Swiss cheese, you know, mm-hmm. trying to find something. And they always find just enough to make them keep going, you know. Right. Oh, just here's like a clue. The, the note. It's this, that, yeah, yeah. And another mystery that neither of us touched on, but um, and the reason I didn't put it in my notes previously is because I couldn't find enough information to validate it. Um, but there are legends that the Nanaimo area is considered or was considered by first nations people mm-hmm. to be haunted is probably not the best word but inhabited it, yeah, yeah. It, it was a an area that had spirits and evil in the Nanaimo area and many people believe that due to him moving to the Nanaimo area that that caused the the crazy to come out in him and his his wife and that could potentially be why he caused or how he caused some of these events in the courtroom because he had an attachment a spirit attachment from the Nanaimo area that right. was making him believe some of these things and uh, performing these Miracles makes it sound like a good thing, but you know what I mean? Uh, the the supernatural mm-hmm. events that he supposedly could cause. And there are people still to this day 
around that area that believe Nanaimo is a haunted, inhabited area. Yeah, and there are people who have done research um, about Brother Twelve that, and and according to a lot of his followers, they believe this that he was possessed. Yeah. Um, that he either had an attachment or he he was completely possessed, and that the Brother Twelve that performed all of these things with the court hearings and and the gold and all that, that that wasn't, that wasn't really Wilson, that that Mm -hmm. was this, this entity that had possessed him. And Oliphant describes this, this ceremony uh, in his book where Wilson chose 12 disciples from his new group of followers and had each of them memorize lines or incantations essentially. Yeah. And finally, on the evening of the ceremony, the group put on blue robes and traveled to DeCourcy Island by canoe. Now, the book says the ceremony opened with Brother Twelve invoking the spirits from the four corners of the earth. At a certain point in his delivery, he raised his arms and cried, I now call fire down. Uh, This was a particular disciple's signal. He threw water on the twigs and they burst into flames. Hmm. So this is an, this is an account from people that actually witnessed this supposedly. Right. Right. The disciples would later say that during the ceremony, they had been in awe of brother 12's mastery over the four elements. One of them, however, that would theorize that Wilson had, uh, put white phosphorus, into the water to cause that mm. chemical reaction so that it would burst into flame. So essentially he was just doing a scientific magic trick. Right. Okay. Um, but another entry in the book describes how brother 12 tried to kill his enemies with black magic. Now, first Wilson and two others would sit in a triangle. Then he would imagine the person he intended to kill in his mind. Wilson would then verbally curse the victim while cutting the air with his hand. Now, this gesture was supposed to sever them from their physical body. So apparently, Brother 12 had put curses like this on various government officials and legal representatives as well. Now, you remember I talked about old Madam Z? She was also a practitioner of black magic. She put curses on uh, male and participated in other dark rituals. Male, uh, I just realized how that sounded. Male, M-A-I-L. Right. So she was going to curse a letter and put it in the mail and send it to somebody. Yeah. Okay. Now, Madam Z was often the one in charge of handing out physical labor, um, which she was said to have taken great pleasure in. She's also said to have tried to kill a female member of the group with black magic. Now, uh, Edward Arthur Wilson, or Brother 12, whatever you want to refer to him as, uh, was said to have died in Switzerland in 1934. So he didn't live much longer after all of this. Right. Um, But that's been questioned. Some people believe that the cult leader actually faked his own death. and for those who do not believe in the powers of discarnate spirits, psychic attacks, and black magic, 
This would seem like it could have been an easy task to accomplish, especially around this time. Um, but Wilson had convinced thousands of his followers to believe in his powers in the spiritual world um, and his ability to harness and use them as well. Now, if these powers were real, then Wilson may have truly been possessed. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot, like I said, a lot of his followers believed that he was. But if he had no power at all and he was just a con man, um, he had the, what this article said is he had the capacity to fake anything. Mm -hmm. You know, if he could pull off something like this, faking his own death was an easy thing to do. Right. So it's like I said, it's, it's fascinating. And, and there's so much more. The, these are, we've hit the main highlights um, in, in the Brother 12 mystery. Um, but there's so much more when you start digging in about life in this colony and, and how they governed um, these people and, and how they convinced them to do, essentially do their bidding. Right. Um, you know, using you know, fear and, and and trickery, even what some people would consider to be brainwashing. Um, you know, sure. if, if enough, if, if you're around enough people that believe something, uh, eventually it's going to seep in and, and you're going to go, maybe they're right. Why am I the only one that doesn't believe in this? You know, they all believe that he has these powers. What, what's wrong with me? And mm -hmm. you begin to just kind of go with the group. Um, but it, it was, it's incredible that he was able to, to garner that much authority over people. So I've got a question for you, Matt. Okay. Relating to this. Do you think, and it, it's what we just talked about. Do you think that he did have a spirit attachment? And if so, do you think it was prior to moving to Nanaimo or was it because of the area and his practices at Nanaimo that he acquired this spirit attachment? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, my, 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 my heart wants to say when, when he had these visions or dreams or whatever, and he heard this voice, that it put him on a path um, to start digging deeper into dark arts. Mm -hmm. And when he arrived in the nine, in the Nanaimo region and all of the, the, the legend and stories about the land, um, I think he believed possibly that he could harness some of that spiritual energy that was there. And by performing these rituals, if you open up your mind to this, he, he would have invited an entity, you mm -hmm. know, in, into himself. Right. And possibly even Madam Z as well. Um, and and not that anything about Brother Twelve seems logical. Um <laughs> that that he was he was just your a average Joe that was 
trying to make a buck and, and build up a following and do some writing. Um, and then he turned into this strangely charismatic leader of thousands of people and, and was able to um, somehow curse these court proceedings and, and have all these events happen and terrify people. Um, it, it, it's really not like that. That, that became the extreme and that, that's what eventually, um, you know, let, led to his, uh, infamy. Um, but I think it was probably always there. It probably just gained a lot more energy when he got to Nanaimo. Uh, you ended with what I'm thinking, because what I thought, and maybe, maybe I'm far off, but he was into reading about the occult and stuff like that. And so he, he, he knew about spirits and, and everything. Well, then he was apparently really sick. And as we know uh, from the research we've done, uh, evil spirits will use a weakness in a human body to be able to gain control. So whether that be physical or mental weakness or whatever it is, they will gain control that way. So I think when he had that vision, that was the initial attachment phase of his, uh, I guess, just just the rest of his life with this entity. But I, I think, and I'm speculating because obviously we'll never know, but I think one of the reasons that he saw what he saw was the spirit trying to lead him to a path where this spirit could gain more power. It knew yeah. that it could manipulate him in a way to get him to a region like Nanaimo that is supposedly a power spot for evil. And so it directed him there. And then it directed him to perform these ceremonies, which would increase this spirit's hold on him and its power. Mm-hmm. And I, I think just to me, that's the way I, I kind of think about it is he was, he wasn't quote normal in the first part of his life, but he had normal jobs, was functioning as a non cult leader yeah. <laughs> for the first part of his life. And then after this, this was apparently his awakening and he became this, like you said, charismatic leader of people. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was all an attachment and it was all done to benefit this spirit, which it wouldn't, if it's an evil spirit, it's not going to do anything to benefit him. Right. But I think the whole path was simply just to better this spirit's uh, hold on him and its power on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, you have to kind of open your mind to this, but it, if you think about, you know, demonic possession or a possession of some type of entity, what, what is one commonality that we see in these stories is that over time, the, the entity drains the life force out of the human. That mm-hmm. the, the human may may have these these powers or at least appear to, 
but they're not really theirs. They're that spirit that's using this human body as a vessel. And the vessel is going to age and it's going to wear out much faster because of the energy that the entity is pulling from it. And we see that in a lot of those cases that we covered when we did our, our uh, episode on demonic possession, where these people, they become physically ill. They, they don't eat well. Um, you know, they, they begin to take on a more gaunt appearance and there's multiple, um, sightings of how poor health he was in 1929 when these, when these court cases were happening that, and I, and I think that may have actually fed more of the fear, you know, that if he's this, this weak, sick man, but yet can cause all this, uh, stuff to happen, you know, Mm -hmm. whoa, we, we, we better, we better be afraid of this guy. Right. You know, he looks like, he looks like we could blow him over with a strong wind, but look what he did. Um, yeah. So he's obviously got, you know, he's much, much stronger than we could even imagine based on his appearance. But I mean, I I think you're on the right track. Um, you know, that, that some attachment led him to that area for whatever reason, just to, you know, maybe, maybe gain power, find a new host, something. Um, and you know, I mean, we, we've talked about it before. There's, there's a lot of cases of possession out there, um, that you can't, you can't take all of them and just go, yeah, that's not it. Yeah, that's not, there's some very oddly convincing ones, right? You know, so what, whichever side of the fence you, you lie on the demonic possession, um, there's there's some there's some stuff out there that you just can't ignore, um, sure. and so I think this is this is potentially one of those cases. Yeah. So before we end it, uh, speaking of him being charismatic, it just made me think of this quote about charisma that I wanted to share. Guy said, "Charisma is simply the ability to make people think your narcissism is interesting and fascinating." <laughs> That's a great quote. <laughs> and I think it fits yeah, with him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, we've got a lot of listeners in Canada. Um, I'm sure hey. you guys already, <laughs> I'm sure you we, didn't say it right. Got, you got to say Canada. Eh? Um, yeah. but I'm sure that you guys had, had heard stories of brother 12 and, um, you know, if, if there's some things, like I said, we left out quite a bit, but if there's some interesting things that we left out that you had learned about Brother 12 and the uh, and the Aquarians, um, let us know. We'd love to hear it. The best place to do that is in our Facebook group. Uh, it's called The Graveyard. Um, we have, what, seven, 8,000 members in there. It's one of the best yeah, groups eight. out there. We, uh, it, it's It's active every day, and there's just people sharing personal experiences. Um, I've seen people ask for help with Uh situations that are going on in, in their, uh, in their homes. Um, And they get good help too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've got a lot of people in there that can help. We absolutely do. We, we've got a lot of people that, uh, that are in the group that, uh, are way more knowledgeable than Adam or myself. Mm -hmm. 
you know, but you know, we have a lot of fun and it's a safe place. No one's going to make fun of you. You can share your stories. You can talk about these things. And we're just all here to, to, to hear these fascinating stories. Um, and after that, you can slide over to our website, which is graveyardpodcast.com. There you can listen to the show. You can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise, and you can become a patron. And as Adam said at the beginning of the show, um, you know, there's a lot of bonus content out there. Um, you know, you can now get the ad ad free versions of the shows that have ads. Um, so it's it's definitely something worth checking out if you hadn't already. And if you have, thank you so much uh, mm-hmm. for your support of the show. Uh, don't forget and rate and review us on iTunes. It brings us up the charts and it allows more people to find the show when they go, when they go hunting for paranormal podcasts. So this, I t- we told you this was going to be a good one. This is going mm-hmm. to be pretty interesting. Um, and until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon.